The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, we take a wagon train to the stars and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. I will also be in the interviewer's seat today for my conversation with David Boop, Kat Rambo, Ginny Koch, Michael F. Haspel, Will McCarthy, and Alex Schwartzman about Gunfight on Europa Station, an anthology of Western-inspired science fiction stories out now from, who else? Bain Books. We had a lot of fun discussing why the Western genre has such staying power and the many ways that the tropes and themes of the Western have been part of science fiction almost as long as both genres have existed. We also give you a sneak peek at everyone's stories, which will surely entice you to run out and buy a copy or multiple copies of Gunfight on Europa Station. But first, the news. It's December and the Bain hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in or will be shortly. Let's take a look. First up is Michael Z. Williamson's That Was Now, This Is Then, the sequel to his Soldier's Lost in Time novel, A Long Time Until Now. Soldiers Out of Time. Then, First Lieutenant Sean Elliott and nine other mixed service US soldiers on a convoy in Afghanistan suddenly found themselves thrown back to Earth's Paleolithic age. They were not alone. Displaced Romans, Neolithic Europeans, and more appeared. Some became allies, some deadly foes. Against all odds, the team survived and found a way back to the 21st century, tattered but triumphant. Now, the Bicos, humans from the far future whose meddling caused the first rift have stranded another group of American soldiers in the ancient past. They need Elliot's team of time-toughened veterans to return to the Paleolithic and gather these displaced soldiers for recovery. Elliot's team knows that prehistory is a hard place to live and an easy place to die. In the end, only inventiveness, grit, and a thirst for freedom from the fickle tides of time can keep them alive and fighting to save their displaced brothers and sisters in arms and find a way back to the place and time they call home. Next up is 1637 The Coast of Chaos by Grantville Stalwarts, Eric Flint, Paula Goodlip, and Gorg Huff. The fight for the new world is on. In late 1636, the recently formed United States of Europe makes a private pact with the Netherlands. The USE agrees to create no settlements of its own along the coast north of Pomlico Sound in what is today's North Carolina and east of the Appalachian Mountains, and it will not contest the Netherlands' control of Manhattan Island and the Hudson Valley. In exchange, the Netherlands agrees to abolish slavery in its possession and to assist the USE in suppressing the Atlantic safe trade. But following shortly thereafter, 
the long dormant French claim to the British territories they purchased in 1633 from the King of England become active when new French King Gaston sends troops to invade that portion of North America known today as New England. The American coast of chaos is set for explosion that may change the future forever and liberty and justice for all hang in the balance. And finally, we mix a little fantasy in our science fiction with the all-new anthology of Sword and Planet science fantasy stories, aptly titled Sword and Planet, edited by Christopher Rocchio. Science fiction and magic rule the stars. The distant future, like the distant past, is a place of myths, of legends, and of great heroes. Here are stories where magic and science exist together, knights and starships, wizards and ray guns, swords and planets. Cyborg knights battle extraterrestrial demons to rescue a peaceful village. A young girl unlocks an ancient power to protect her world from off-world colonists. A pair of two-bit mercenaries are hired to solve a murder in a labyrinth beneath a crumbling city at the end of time. And a young knight must face down an alien menace to awaken the power within. All that and more. And that's it for the news. Now for our discussion on Gunfight on Europa Station. Howdy partners, we are here talking about the Rootin' Tootin' new anthology of space westerns out from Bane Books, Gunfight on Europa Station. First up, let's meet the leader of this posse, the editor, Mr. David Boop. And at this point, I will stop making corny cowboy jokes. David <laughs> is a Denver-based speculative fiction author and editor. He's also an award-winning essayist and screenwriter. His debut novel is the sci-fi noir, She Murdered Me with Science from Wordfire Press. A second novel, The Soul Changers, is a serialized Victorian horror novel set in Pinnacle Entertainment's World of Rippers Resurrected. He's been on the podcast in the past, talking about his best-selling and award-nominated Weird Western anthology series he did for us here at Bain. Those books are Straight Out of Tombstone, Straight Out of Deadwood, and Straight Out of Dodge City. David Boop is straight out of Denver. I think he's back home now. <laughs> David Boop, thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast. <laughs> well, as, as always, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, it, we're moving off of planet Earth and off to outer space this time. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, let's meet the uh, the rest of the folks here today. Uh, Michael F. Haspel is a geeky engineer and nerdy artist, a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. He had the opportunities to serve as an ICBM crew commander and as a launch director at Cape Canaveral. He hosts the Quantum Froth Dispatches podcast, which examines storytelling through pop culture classics and shares author interviews. His novel from Tor Books, Graveyard Shift, was a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. Michael is currently working on, an, uh, on other stories within the same world known as um, Umbra Case Files, as well as other novels. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for coming on and welcome, I think for the first time, to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. And uh, actually, one of those other stories is for Bane in okay. um, an anthology, I think, called No Game for Nights that comes out next year. Ah, uh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> so, that'll be next fall, I want to say, if I'm, yeah, yeah. If I'm remembering my, my <laughs> schedule right. 
All right. Uh, next up is Ginny Koch. Uh, she writes the Fast, Fresh, and Funny Alien Catherine Kitty Cat series for Daw Books, the Necropolis Enforcement Files series, the Martian Alliance Chronicle series, and as G.J. Koch, the Alexander Outland series. She's made the most of multiple personality disorder by writing under a variety of pen names as well, including Anita and Saul, uh, the guys in which she is here today, uh, officially, Jimma Chase, A.E. Stanton, and J.C. Koch. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me and all the rest of my personalities. We appreciate the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alex Schwartzman is a writer, translator, game designer, and anthologist from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he has won the WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction in 2014 and was a two-time finalist for the Canopus Award for Excellence in Interstellar Fiction. His political fantasy novel, Iridani's Crown, was published in 2019. He is the editor of the Unidentified Funny Object series of humorous science fiction and fantasy as well as a variety of other anthologies. And he is the editor and publisher of Future Science Fiction Digest, a magazine that focuses on international fiction. <clears throat> Alex, uh, you also, I should say, you did uh, Cackle of Cthulhu, you edited for us at Bain. So I'm sure you've been on the podcast before. Welcome back. That's right, thank you very much. Uh, last but certainly not least, Cat Rambo. Uh, they live, write, and teach somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, their 200 plus fiction publications include stories in Asimov's, Clark World Magazine, and the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Their most recent work is a space opera, You Sexy Thing, the first in a series from Tor McMillan. A former two-term president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, Rambo continues to volunteer with the organization's Grievance Committee and other projects. Rambo also runs the Rambo Academy for Wayward Writers, an online school featuring some of the best genre writing instructors in the field. Kat Rambo, thank you for coming on the Bain Free Radio Hour to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, so before we talk about uh, everyone's story specifically, I want to lob a question out there and get everybody's take. Uh, Dave, you've edited three weird Western anthologies for Bain, uh, we mentioned earlier, and you've written more uh, stories yourself in the Western and weird Western genres. And here we are talking about what we could maybe call science fiction Westerns. Uh, so I just wanna ask you, I'll let you start and then everybody weigh in. Why as readers are we still drawn to the Western genre, even if it's the form of weird Westerns or Westerns blended with other genres? And why as writers are you folks, um, such as our illustrious panel here, still interested in writing them. Uh, Dave, you really, I think, hit on this in your intro. Uh, so maybe you could uh, go ahead and, like I said, take this one first, and then I want to get everybody else's thoughts. Why, uh, why does this have such staying power? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, the main thing that I think, and, and this is to sum it up in the simplest terms, is um, we love a good mystery. Um, we love to explore that which has eluded us, right? We still go to places in this world to explore, you know, distant lands, things that we have not gotten to experience personally ourselves, right? And, and that's part of over the last couple of years, we have been denied that on a global scale. And now, we're just starting to come out of that um, 
uh, of lockdown and be able to start exploring the world again. So it's a great time to also look at exploring the galaxy and the universe and so forth. There are unanswered questions and we as a species are not happy unless we have answers for those things, whether it's on a personal level, like I wanna know what, it's look, what it looks like to see Mayan ruins with my own eyes, to I wanna see uh, what it looks like to be on a planet that has a red sun, right? And so we have these questions and we need our answers. And the Western is the, uh, probably the, the most um, precise genre for answering those types of questions. What is just over the horizon? And we need to find out whether it's for our own survival or our own curiosity. But that's why the Western keeps coming back as a motif is we have questions and we need answers. Yeah, I think that's a great point and, and something you, like I said, hit on in your intro. Um, anyone else want to jump in or I can I can call on people like a teacher? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll jump in. Um, I, I'm actually, when I first started writing, I thought I was going to be known for novels set in the Old West. So I'm actually an Old West expert. Uh, oh, great. <laughs> among among everything else, and yet 75% of what I write comes out of science fiction. Uh, it's it's not an exact science. Um I think part of the, the the old west has always had a mystique since it start since it that its timeline we have a mystique of you know riding the range one one person or a small group of people surviving against elements um, surviving against hostiles and hostile territory and that really is what space is space is the most hostile of territories for us that exists and going to new planets and is also hostile. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know if you can survive it. You don't know if there are actually natives there that your science hasn't picked up that aren't going to be happy you've arrived um, and so forth. So I think it, it draws a lot of, of the romanticism of adventure to people where you get to experience something, you know, you're, you, you work at a desk all day and you go home and you have dinner and you watch a TV show and that's it. And it seems like a dull life, but you can dive into a book and it takes you back to the old West, you know, where things were exciting or it takes you forward with a Western feel because the West was very adventuresome. It, the East was civilized and the West was utterly barbaric. And you, to survive in that, you had to have skills, you had to have abilities, you had to have staying power. And I think just the romanticism of that time I don't know that it's ever going to leave us. Um, I'm sure there were times before that were romanticized in the same way, but at least for our 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 current um, uh, population, it's still something that we remember collectively as something so fabulous. And so taking it into space is the next romantic, um, and I don't mean romantic like in romance, I mean the romantic idealism of, you know, now we can, you know, Star Trek we can go, you boldly go where no one has gone before. And I think that's an appealing thing to humans. And I think that's why we like it. Yes, Alex. 
so I think part of the reason for me, at least, is that uh, the ideas and themes of Westerns are irrevocably coded in the classic science fiction DNA from, from the pulp era of the 1920s, et cetera. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, growing up in Eastern Europe, I was not really exposed to the Westerns as a genre. I haven't seen Western movies. I haven't read the novels uh, that you guys are referencing. I only found out about them uh, a little bit later in life already. Uh, however, I read so many of the translated uh, science fiction stories that incorporated those elements and that adventurism and that over the horizon um, ideology uh, that David mentioned that for me, I think the ideas of it felt so familiar that I didn't need to go back to the originals. I was already, uh, I was already kind of uh, imbued with them from, uh, you know, from, from the secondary sources. Uh, and I think that's for many people in the genre who are not necessarily as familiar with Westerns. Uh, they're still getting that from Star Trek. They're getting it from Firefly. They're getting it from all sorts of books and short stories, and they want more. Right. I mean, I think I'm, this will probably come up. Uh, Star Trek with a pitch was wagon train to the stars, right? I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, so wagon train to space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe we said wagon. That may be the cell line for this book. I can't remember where that came from. Um, <laughs> so that is that was the logline pitch. So, uh, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> That's the logline pitch for Star Trek. Yeah. So yeah, it's always had. And a, I just dated myself dramatically with that. <laughs> we were in the writers' room. We, you know, you, you, information is freely available. Uh, anyway. uh, and so, it looks like we have a surprise uh, guest. Right. I was going to say, yeah, we were not sure if he was going to be able to make it. I'm going to. I'll introduce him here after we're done with this question. Uh, Will, we're kind of going around and, and talking about the staying power of Westerns, uh, the Western themes and motifs and genres. So um, maybe I'll ask Michael or Kat to weigh in and then you can you can weigh in and then I'll and I'll do your intro and we'll talk about stories. So yeah, sure, Kat, take it away. <laughs> I, I think it's, I mean, everybody's been very totally on target and, and protect, particularly Jeannie talking about it's the romance with a capital R, right? It is, it's the, the kind of the mm -hmm. individual pitted against the, the hostile uh, universe. And I think it's also, it's about the frontier and kind of for a writer, it is so much fun because that frontier is unexplored and you get to go wherever you want in it. And it just has a particular allure that way. Michael, any thoughts or we cut, it's always hard to go last or close to yeah, last. <laughs> um, for me, the Westerns hold the, the promise of the genre for the Western is justice. Like if I was going to drill down to what the core of a Western is to me, that's what it's about. It's about justice and the rugged individualism that, that one person can make a difference. Uh, still, they, they can still make a difference. Now, it's myth, right? It, we know that the old West was really not like that, but the myth of it is that one person can still make a difference and, and achieve justice, whether or not um, they are attached to the law or not. Um, and as more, as more modern Westerns get more complicated, we start seeing that it's not so much, you know, uh, black hat, white hat, you know, it's, there's shades of gray in there, but I think the core is still about achieving justice in some way. 
That's an interesting, that's a cool take. I haven't ever thought of it that way, but yet it feels so right when I hear you say it. Um, Will, did you want to weigh in on this one? Uh, on the, the... Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, you know, every country I think has its own kind of story heart. Uh, and if you think about uh, like, like Britain, for example, Britain's got a long history. It was, you know, uh, first the Picts were there and then the Celts were there and then the Romans invaded and then, uh, you know, the, they had their, their uh, uh, medieval period and then, uh, you know, the Normans invaded. Uh, but sort of the, the, the beating heart of Britain is this time in between sort of the, the Roman era and the medieval era, which is, that's where the myth of, of, of King Arthur comes from. Um, and no matter, I think, how long the, the future history of Britain is, uh, that will still be its, it, its heart. And I think the same is true in America of the, the Western period, which the Wild West was really a very short time, uh, kind of wedged in between the Civil War and, and the rise of, of um, uh, modernism, uh, you know, with electricity and, and all of that. Uh, so the, the Wild West period uh, uh, is this, Kind of narrow sliver of American history, and the longer we we go, uh, the the narrower and farther back uh, that that chunk of our history becomes. And yet, I still think it it drives a lot of uh, you know current events, uh, and and our vision of the future are all shaped by this very American idea of the of the Wild West. Um, and I think that. You know, other countries have their own their own story heart uh, and would envision the future and the present and the past in a in a different way. Um, but because of this very kind of American idea of of the the Western, um, it I think all of our all of our science fiction is informed by that to some extent. Uh, but it is nice, I think, to just sort of uh, drop the any any pretense and just go straight for it uh there's a bit of a, a sense of relief in doing that i think yeah just laying laying the cards on the table let me uh why is this there we go i'm going to introduce you will uh since you joined us a little bit late uh thank you for that answer i think uh it was great um and the person who just gave that answer is engineer novelist journalist entrepreneur will mccarthy He's a former contributing editor for Wired Magazine and science columnist for the Sci-Fi Channel. He is a two-time winner of the AnLab Award, has been nominated for the Nebula, Locus, Seiyun, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Seiyun, S-E-I-U-N Award, Colorado Book, Theodore Sturgeon, and Philip K. Dick Awards, and contributed to projects that won a Webby, an Epi, a Game Developer's Choice Award, and a General Excellence National Magazine Award. Short fiction has graced the pages of magazines like Analog, Asimov's Wired, and SF Age, and he has uh, 12 published novels, at least according to this bio that I have, uh, including uh, the New York Times Notable uh, Bloom, Amazon.com, Best of Y2K, The Collapsium, which we have reissued here at Bain, and uh, most recently, Antediluvian and Rich Man's Sky. So Will, thanks for uh, joining, joining us here. Um, let's talk about, I want to talk about now some, just a little bit of you, the specific stories you all uh, wrote. Um, 
and I'll start, I'm going to go in the order. I think that they're in, in the, uh, in the anthology that Dave put together. So, um, the penultimate stand of Pina Gracchi, I hope I say that right. Yeah. It's close um, enough. <laughs> by Michael Haspel. Um, so I, I liked how this had a very real world, uh, feeling of the frontier where there's this sort of established government, but it's kind of shaky and distant. And then there's like mercenaries and company bosses running things where it's well, we said the phrase, let's say it again, Wild West. Um, you talk about coal mining in the book as a template. So can you kind of just talk about a little bit how that is the setup of this uh, this world and this story? Yeah, so uh, for folks that don't know, I am from Colorado Springs. And so we are kind of still the Old West. <laughs> you can just look around and there's all kinds of history around here. And what gave me kind of the inspiration for this was in 1878, there was a railroad war between the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad and the Santa Fe Railroad. And they hired the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. They, they started hiring people to sabotage each other's tracks. So they were trying to make it through the Royal Gorge to get to Leadville because they just discovered silver. And what happened is the, uh, the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad went ahead and hired a U.S. Marshal by the name of Bat Masterson. <laughs> and he recruited a lot of ne'er-do-wells to kind of tear up uh, other railroads. And that was like uh, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, uh, Ben Thompson, Mysterious uh, Dave Mather, and uh, our favorite, Doc Holliday. So, <laughs> and uh, there's, that's what kind of gave me the opening of the story, that why are all these gunfighters being brought in here? And then the other thing that kind of informed it was another incident that happened much later in Colorado, which was the Ludlow Massacre, which uh, where the uh, coal miners were started striking and they called in the National Guard and they opened up on the crowd with machine guns and there were hundreds of people killed. Uh, so the combination of both those is kind of what informed it. And then, you know, I went a more sci-fi direction with it so that it wasn't as morose. <laughs> um so uh <laughs> i like i like um so how you know in your description how there's these various factions that are sort of aligned with each other sometimes not sometimes yes and we're sort of switching alliances um throughout um but tell us about our kind of two main characters of uh danovan and uh, pina uh, and their relationship and how they come to be called into this mess that you've. Yeah. So they're, um, they're kind of adjudicators. That's what I kind of wanted to make a, a sort of us marshal kind of title, but, but not tie it directly to anything real. And Pina was essentially the head of this thing there there. And Danovan was her deputy and they've run into these guys from NJK security who are, very loosely based on the Pinkertons. <laughs> so they're not nice people, but they put on a nice front. And, uh, and they wound up getting kicked out of, of the uh, law service because of this. So Pina has talked Danovan at the beginning of the story, Pina has talked Danovan into taking this contract because they think they're going to put down an insurrection. But she's really there to make sure that NJK, who's known for strike busting and, and killing people, do, don't get out of hand and Danovan's kind of along for the ride and he only finds out that NJK is involved when he's already there it's too late, too late to leave <laughs> he's, he's not too happy about it no, no he's not yeah. very happy about it <laughs> um 
So uh, one other aspect, so the, I, I say this every time we do an anthology, these things are hard to talk about because they're short stories and I don't want to spoil them. You know, with a novel, you can talk about mm -hmm. the first 200 pages and not spoil too much. These are 20 pages, you know. Um, but uh, so I, I don't, try not to spoil too much about the ending of any of these. Um, but one thing I liked is that you've got them mining, if I'm not mistaken, they're mining water, right? Correct. Um, and yeah, so they're harvesting I think, water. I thought that was cool, you know, in, in a lot of the science fiction stories we've seen lately and in a lot of sort of, um, including some that we'll talk about and in even talking about some maybe near-ish future, we talk about sort of mining rare earth minerals or whatever in asteroids, but here we're, we're mining or harvesting water. Um, I just wonder where that uh, came from. And of course you do, it's not, it's, uh, it's not inconsequential to the plot. And that's all I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, well, that came from I was trying to think of what resource you absolutely have to have to terraform if you were going to, you know, settle a new solar system or something. <clears throat> and it has to be water. It's like if, you know, and it turns out water's kind of abundant, but maybe not liquid water. And what they found on this asteroid, which is a huge asteroid, but the section that we talk about is really small. Um, this asteroid named Aguilar is is liquid oceans like underneath the surface so and it's it's apparently fresh water so they can just pump it right out and it's ready to go mm -hmm. yeah um and, and again just because we've got so many folks on here we gotta do these <laughs> kind of fast and fast and furious but um i do want to say i love the title um and it's a great play on last stand the last stand of <laughs> an ultimate stand so uh kind of by way of uh closing up on this one um does this mean we're going to get to see at least one more story? Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. Do you think in the works right now or? Uh, not right now, but okay. I wrote, I think, I don't remember how long, how, how many words David gave me, but I know I wrote about probably 16,000 words on that story and had to cut just all this really cool stuff that's going to find its way <laughs> in another story. Yeah. I saw a thing on Twitter. It was um, the the broken woke or, or something, you know, or what, tired and wired. I don't remember the format, but it was kill your darlings. The new version is, what is it? copy paste your darlings to a new word document. <laughs> yes. <Twitter>. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't throw anything away. Um, so, well, Michael, thank you. Uh, let's let's go on to uh, genies or Anitas, we should say maybe, uh, or both, I guess. Showdown on Big Rock 27. These all have such fun, or so many in this book have great these great Western titles. I love them. Um, so Alice in Wonderland, or I should probably use the right title, uh, Alice Adventures in Wonderland. Alice's <laughs> Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, plays, a, plays a crucial part in this story. And I wondered how that, uh, where that came from. Uh, it was just sort of a fun uh thing to throw in well uh, I, I obviously I, I like Lewis Carroll but I needed to pick something that a kid would have read that has the potential to still be around a thousand years from now be uh this this story is like Michael I wrote a I wrote an 18,000 word novella that was way too long for, for this thing. And so I said, oh, okay, that's a novella. And now I'm going to write a different story that's also set in the same universe. This is set in my Belters universe. So um, I have a variety of short stories in this, in this specific universe. And um, 
so it's hundreds of years in in the future from where we are now and you know we're we're we've terraformed lunars we've terraformed we've created cloud cities and something has to keep that going and that is the belt so in order but everyone reads in the belt no one is not that that's the fun fantasy for all of this right <laughs> everybody everybody reads because you're out there in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to do and games can take energy because they have to run a new ship system but reading doesn't it just takes some light so everybody reads everybody's readers so it needed to be something that would be far enough back that I could, and, and but that I could make, that I would believe thousand, a thousand years from now, people will still be reading. And I honestly think that they will still be reading that. And therefore I could use that as uh, Patsy's favorite book that helps us save the day. Yeah, yeah I, I know so that's um, why. Christopher Rocchio, who um, wrote the Sun Eater books and used to work for Bain, he's been on here before. He he has done some of that kind of stuff with his world. And he's like, that stuff gets to make it because I like it and I want it to make it, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> yeah. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass will make it in, into the future. And it also had to be something that anybody reading it right. would at least be yeah. able to recognize it. There would be, there would have been better books to choose, but not that could have worked both in the world and in the story. So um, Bozer Geist, I love that name. Uh, it's such a perfect like Western space pirate name, um, which is what <laughs> Thank he you. is. Thank you. Um, so tell us about who he is or who they are. It's really not one person. They are. Bozer yes. Geist is really um, a title. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the, uh, the, the pirate um, back in at the start of expansion. Um, the, the system has become pretty lawful. I mean, they still have, they have the galactic police um, that cruise the solar system. They have every planet, every lunar, every suspended city, they have law enforcement, but there's not a lot of crime because humanity figured out as they started expansion, it's really only us. We really cannot afford to be, we're all alone. Maybe there's people out there, but our own solar system is abundant enough now with the scientific advances we've made, we don't need to find them. Maybe if they come calling, we'll care, but we don't care. But we as a group need to work together or we die. If you're on Pluto because you're, you're part of the team that runs Karen Prison out there, you really need to make sure and have the belief that the rest of the system is gonna support you or you're gonna freeze to death on, on, this, on this, this rock. So, they're very law-abiding, but no group can ever be 100% law-abiding, and that's where Bozergeist and this pirate Amada come in. And um, they, it's, it's the, the evil dread pirate Roberts, really. <laughs> let's, let's call that as it is. It is the evil <laughs> dread pirate Roberts. Um, it is a title. And so uh, when you started, the first Bozer realized, the first Bozergeist realized there's no way in the world I will survive forever. I don't necessarily have any kids. I'm going to groom my seconds and thirds and everything so that we've got people who understand our learning so that my vast empire of evil can survive and that, that it has done. And so you kill one Bozer, another Bozer pops up, but there you get to kill that Bozer Geist. So there are uh, after the, the Bozer Geist that will pop up after the one dealt with in uh, Big Rock 27, um, 
will not be the same person. There's different, they have different advantages, different, you know, just like anybody else. It's just like if, you know, if we say David's our leader and David gets knocked off and Michael's the next one in, he is going to do things a little bit differently because he's a different person and it's that kind of thing. So, uh, but it's just, it's just fun to have a Dread Pirate Roberts who you can use as, it's just a, it's a great bad guy forever. And, and this is hypothetical. This is hypothetical, Jitty, right? Right. The whole. Right. No, uh, I'm not killing you. No. Right, okay. David, I just want to make sure. I'm not killing you off. Don't worry. I had like, like I said earlier, I have three editors on this call with me. You're all safe. Very, very safe. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will happen to your characters ever. So uh, this is one more question I've got about this, uh, which is that the miners in the story uh, that we follow here are a family, kind of stake, they've staked mm -hmm. the claim, as it were, and we're talking about space western. So it reminded me of things mm -hmm. like Little House on the Prairie, which is not really, I guess, a it's a frontier. It's not really a western, but similar, you know, where you have a mm -hmm. family unit out on the frontier trying to eke out of this existence. Um, and uh, you know, like you mentioned, the law is a little bit dispersed. Um, and I just wondered if that was something you kind of consciously drew on uh, that kind of that story of the family unit out there by themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in, in this, in this world for me, there are a lot of family units out there. We have what call, I'm called the conglomerates, which are the big mining companies. And then they're independent miners. And most of the independent miners are families, family groups, or what you would almost, what you would call homesteaders that they're working claims together because there's safety in numbers there's ease in numbers and so forth. So yeah, I really look at the belt as this is the rest of the solar system has become very, you know, you've got, you've got people on planets, you've got people on lunars, you've got people in suspended cities, and then you have the poor people working the fields or mining the gold or doing all this stuff. And that's what they do. So this is not uh, the elite of those, some of them have enough money to be elite, but they're not the elite of the solar system. These are the hardworking, hard scrabble people who are individualized enough that, and honestly, in many ways, noble enough to be willing to do the most dangerous work in the solar system to keep the entire system going. So there's, they're all, there, it's really a, a belt filled with rugged individualists who it's, it's my old West um, in space. So. And that's kind of what we're doing here, old West in space. So fit exactly. Um, Alex, I want to talk about what's winner take all. That's your story's title, right? Um, I love the idea you have these interdicted zones. When I read it, I was like, how can I steal that and him not notice, right? Like, it's just such a cool idea. Um, so where did that idea come from? And maybe you can tell a little bit about how it plays into the story. Um, um, I'm fascinated with the idea of dropping uh, modern or rather in this case, future characters into a setting where uh, their technology doesn't work. And so uh, I've actually written uh, several pieces that are in this uh, Commonwealth setting uh, that the that winner takes all play, takes place in. And the idea is that there is this uh, ancient alien race that are long gone, which of course we've all seen uh, before, that has left satellites in orbit of certain planets. Uh, and those satellites are producing an effect that is dampening modern technology. So essentially, uh, any technology that doesn't involve microchips will still work. So they can get down there and they can... Uh, shoot guns, they can, you know, do a lot of sort of early 20th century stuff almost. 
uh, or earlier, but they can't use anything really modern. And so those zones are typically, it's not the entire planet, it's just swaths of land that are being affected by the satellite. So they can still land and take off on, on spaceships uh, elsewhere on the planet. But once they go into, uh, into an interdicted zone, they better be prepared to, to deal with that. And most people who are used to the technology of the modern day era for, for the spacefaring civilization are in no way prepared for, for that sort of like woodsman uh, existence. And so the main character of the story, Elise, is an experienced uh, operator who is specifically uh, in charge of leading missions into these interdicted zones and, and her um, you know, her team are trained by her and by other people like her as well to uh, to be able to kind of work in these environments. And there's all sorts of interesting technological fixes that they uh, that they employ. So, for example, they use gliders because the glider doesn't involve any kind of technology on 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 landing to to actually arrive exactly where they need to arrive within the interdicted zone, even if they have to then. Uh, find a way on foot or on horse or whatever, whatever it, it takes them to get out of the zone before they can actually lift off. Yeah, and it's such a, like, uh, convenient sounds like easy, such a cool way to like get that Western, because again, Western, this is a frontier, the things were more rugged. And here right. you know, you're, you're forcing them back to early 20th century, you know, um, such a, a kind of a good angle to take uh, to to get that feeling. Um, so the quote <clears throat> that's attributed, I guess, kept to Catherine II that plays a big part in this is the victor is not to be judged. And I wonder if you could talk about that theme and how it plays into your story, and maybe kind of maybe plays into a lot of westerns or science fiction westerns in a way, maybe. Um, and just talk about that a little bit. Well, the, the, the characters are very morally complex. Uh, the main character, uh, again, like I said, I wrote, uh, I wrote about her before and uh, she is not entirely comfortable with her role as an enforcer for the Commonwealth. Uh, in a, of course, because it's a Western type story, it's taking place on the frontier and most of these interdicted planets are on the outskirts of the Commonwealth. And so a lot of the stuff that goes down there uh, is not exactly cool. I mean, uh, you know, the, the coddled citizens, and this is a conversation that actually takes place in the story, whether the coddled uh, citizens within the heart of the Commonwealth aren't really aware of all the bad stuff that, uh, that takes place out there. And so she has to make morally great choices. And a lot of the time uh, she's able to survive by the skin of her teeth by basically being successful. So if she can complete the mission uh, and, 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 and bring back the, you know, the, the you know, the, uh, you know, th th I don't want to give, give too much away of the story, but bring back the thing that they want, uh, then she can get away with certain things that otherwise she'll get, you know, burned for essentially. Yeah. Uh, and the people that are, that she's interacting with and that are in charge, essentially she's settled with this bean counter that goes with her. And, uh, you know, he's very much a political operative. Uh, and so he, um, you know, there's a tension between the two of them in the way that they do things and in the way that in, in the worldviews, which hopefully comes through uh, in, in the story. Yeah. Um, well, just a one thing, and again, we don't want to give too much away. <laughs> I keep saying that, but um, the MacGuffin, or MacGuffin makes it sound too uh, inconsequential, but the lady is who they're after this uh, character called the lady. So could you tell us a little bit about um, the lady 
and um, why it is they're after her and uh, yeah, all that. So, so the, uh, the Commonwealth is very human centric and a lot of the other species are treated in a way that in the Westerns, you know, the, the native Indians would have been treated or, or other, uh, you know, sort of there's, there's some uh, colonization themes going on. And the bad guy, quote unquote, that they're after is actually an artificial intelligence, which is something that re is revealed very early in the story. So I'm comfortable saying that. Uh, <laughs> and they don't understand how an AI is surviving in an interdicted zone, right. but they have good intelligence that it's there. And she is a leader of this rebel group that is anti-Commonwealth, but essentially it's a group that is concerning itself with uh, the rights of, of non-human citizens of the Commonwealth. Yeah, and, 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 and they got to get her. And I like you said, there's this big question mark of how is this even possible, right? And uh, yeah, so- Right, and it, and it does get explained. So, so this, is, right. this is, even though the story is in an existing setting, it is a complete standalone, you get, you know, the, you know, there, you don't need to have read uh, any previous material right. or expect to read something else to get like the complete story out of it. Yeah, I think a lot of these uh, we've mentioned have taken place in uh, uh, worlds you folks have worked on, but I'm um, <clears throat> maybe I'm tipping my hand of how much of your work I've read, but I didn't know that with it. <laughs> Wills, I recognize Queendom of Saul, um, but uh, they all stand alone. Well, yeah. well, when I when I send out invites, I invite people to write in their existing worlds if they have the rights to it, because um, it allows for uh, a two way communication. Uh, previous readers who like that world will come yeah. to the anthology yeah. and people who read the anthology then will go and maybe explore right. the author's other worlds. So yeah. I'm always pushing for that. And it worked really well with the uh, the Weird Western series. You know, we had. Dresden Files, and we had Monster Hunter, and and so many other uh, Dan Shamble from Kevin J. Anderson, and stuff like that. So um, it's it's great to be able to bring existing characters and give a little kind of like microscopic view of their world, and then if people like them, they can immediately go out and find more. Yeah. When I always love to, like, sometimes it's a main character from that, uh, those series, but I also like, you know, I always loved those, like, uh, when they would do, I, I remember by the ones from Batman, the animated series, right? Where it would be like from the point of view of whoever, right? Some weird side character. In Alfred. Alfred. Or Killer Croc. That was one that they did from Killer Croc. Yeah. You know, and I would love those. Yeah. I think the short stories can do that where it's like, okay, maybe this can't mm -hmm. be a whole novel, but we can do this weird little side view thing of a world, uh, the, a corner of a world maybe that we wouldn't get to explore uh, otherwise. Dave, you're talking, let's talk about your story. Yours was the next up, um, which is... Oh, me? Yeah. I'm going to actually... I'm going to defer, actually. Okay. You don't if want to talk time about at the, Okay, no, all right. Well, I want to give the other authors okay. a chance to talk, and if there's time at the end, we can come back to me. Okay, well then- But I would like to, I'd like to hear them. Okay, well, Captain, you are up. Writers of the Endless Void. Um, J.R. Martin uh, co-authored this uh, with you, and uh, he's not here with us, so I- I'm going to take a break from being very reader centric and maybe do a little craft talk and just wanted you to maybe talk about collaboration and how, how you all collaborated on this story. Um, yeah, collaboration is a real art, I think, not just in the writing, but in sort of managing each other's expectations and being on the same page. Uh, it's something I don't 
propose to people unless I'm pretty sure they'll be pleasant to work with. And uh, Jermaine was definitely just a delight. Uh, early on, I said, hey, I've got this call. Are you interested in working on something? And he said, sure. And I think we bounced some different ideas back and forth and decided to take the movie Shane as our uh, starting point. And then he, I think he wrote the first scene. Yeah, he wrote the first scene and sent it to me. And then I added a chunk and sent it back to him. And we kind of went back and forth like that. And then I took a pretty strong editing pass over the uh, end because, uh, you know, that, that was uh, fun. It was, it was a really great uh, story to do. I mean, it's always fun to collaborate and see what the other person does with your ideas. And there's that sort of sense of tossing a ball back and forth. And it's like, whoa, what are you gonna do with this? Oh, what are you gonna do with this? And, and that's just a ton of fun. Well, I wanted to kind of give him his due uh, since he's not here on the podcast, but um, let's talk about the story. Um, you know, I'd kind of mentioned kind of the man with no name, but yes, Shane is a much better example, which is, you know, the stranger from somewhere else with this wounded past coming into town and uh, maybe once again, having to take up arms. Um, this stranger does have a name, which is Jim, although in Texas, I say Jim, it sounds like Jim. Um, so could you tell us about him uh, and his history at the as we enter this story? Well, he's, it, he's in the position of being a retired soldier who has done terrible things that he wants to get away from. And that part of the story is his coming to terms with the fact that he has to sort of take up his gun again when he thinks he has abandoned it. And so he has, he and his uh, ship, Innie, uh, have been traveling. They think they've found a bit of a haven and then they've got to defend it. Mm, yeah. And he's like cybernetically enhanced. Yeah. Thing, right. Like, and he can talk to the ship and. Um, yeah. He can, it's that sort of where you can jack into the ship and control it with your impulses and, and all of that. And he's a, you know, you, you want that sort of that hero who like, who like the gunslinger is kind of superhuman in some ways. And so he's very, very good at what he does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's doing these like calculations on the fly and all yeah. Things. I, yeah. Um, so when we talk about these like space Westerns, uh, it sort of occurs to, I think to me, and I think everybody we've kind of hit on this is that sort of taking the Western tropes and motifs and all this and putting them in the future or to a different setting we can like explore them from different angles. Um, we kind of just talked about that too with different angles on worlds. Um, but in this case, the main character is uh, Usami or Usami. Usami um, yeah. yeah, so could you tell us about her and maybe how having like her, she's a younger girl, a uh, young woman, uh, having her as the point of view character like inform the writing of this. And then maybe you can also just kind of tell us a little bit more about the predicament they find themselves in uh, that needs to right. be so Usami's father has died uh, and she is, is, it's her and her mother and her uncle. And uh, her father has died under mysterious, kind of somewhat mysterious circumstances. It's pretty clear what has happened to most people. Um, and the advantage of working with a point of view character like that is 
you can kind of play a little bit with the kind of naivete of the character. And so like, there's some flirting going on that she, that's just sort of like shooting over her head. And, uh, and she's also, you know, young people have such a kind of pure passion for things. Uh, and, and she is, she's at that point in her life where she's figuring out what she wants to do. And I'm pretty sure she's going to go on to become a, a pilot like Jim. Yeah. Yeah. And she, um, so I guess, can we talk, just maybe set up, I guess you kind of have, but the main conflict of, of what's going on in the story, just, I just always like to make people feel like they have to go buy the book to figure out what happens, you know, right? So. <laughs> well, it's, it's that classic, uh, you know, the, the, the big boss with a deep pockets and he's trying to make more money and the people have to sort of band together to defend themselves from him. And part of the story is about the community learning to uh, stand up to that, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a very, always going to be a timely uh, narrative, right? The story of the community banding together against outside forces, even when that, that sort of the out voice outside force is one of their own kind of gone wrong yeah um, the story that it reminded me of the most um we mentioned shane we mentioned man with no name sort of thing but rooster cogburn uh, um that with the pov uh, character and the needing to somebody to come in and kind of speak for the people yeah uh, kind yeah. of thing i really that's what appealed to me about that story so much i love that movie so that that delights me yeah compare it <laughs> true grit for anyone who's not yeah uh, yeah so um well that's sort of that outside character who's able to do things maybe the community uh, needs done segues into will mccarthy's story doc holiday 2.0 i think pretty nicely so i'm going to use that as a pivot point um so uh how do wyatt earp and doc holiday end up on mars in the future will <laughs> <clears throat> well, this is set, uh, as you mentioned, in the Kingdom of Saul. It's the same uh, uh, as, you know, it's in the, the universe of my uh, novel, The Collapsium, and its various sequels. Um, and uh, the technology level in the Kingdom of Saul is really quite high by our standards in, in sort of a Clark's Law kind of way. Um, so Mars uh, was uh, terraformed, and there are people living on it uh, in a state of of uh, relative ease by by our standards, um, but at the end of the day, you know, mine's about mining. Also, um, uh, at the end of the day, you still need material to make all this stuff out of, and there are still places where that the desirable materials are more concentrated. Um, so even though you have these kind of high tech things that are taking apart a mountain atom by atom and shuffling it off into into buffers of each each desirable element, um, uh, you still have a place where this is happening and you have the people who are doing it. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit rougher than the, the rest of the society. And so it's, it's, a, it's a mining town. You're gonna find, you know, that sort of thing uh, going on, you know, as far into the future as you, as you care to look. Um, but like all mining towns, uh, it, it gets a little rough at times. Uh, and the people in the Queendom of Saul have it pretty soft. Um, and they realized that they didn't have anyone uh, in, their, in their whole 
society in, in the whole solar system. There wasn't anybody who really actually knew how to clean up a mining town. So they decided to uh, uh, resurrect a, a historical character uh, based on all the information that was that was known about him. So they brought they brought Wyatt Earp uh, back from the dead in order to clean up the mining town. And it you know uh, Wyatt Earp uh, was really not a gunfighter. We think of him that way, but mostly what he was was a peacekeeper, a peacemaker, and very effective in that role. Um, and so this is why the the hypercomputers of the Queendom have determined that that he's the right person to to bring back for this. Um, and he cleans cleans up the the town in pretty short order, but then they run into problems with, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't you have you have uh, uh, sort of piracy happening where people are intercepting the element shipments. This is the other thing: is that the valuable elements that you've extracted from the ground they still have to go somewhere, uh, and they're vulnerable while they're in transit. Um, and so you had people trying to intercept this. And so then you end up in a situation where it actually does start turning into gunfights. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the story is a sequel to a, an earlier story called, called uh, Wyatt Earp 2.0. But at the end of Wyatt Earp 2.0, um, Wyatt Earp brings back Doc Holliday because he says, oh, if this is turning into a shooting war, I need, I need Doc Holliday with me. So that's how that, uh, that story ended. That's then the beginning of, of uh, this story where you have Doc Holliday who's been brought back from the dead for the specific purpose of getting into some, some gunfights. Um, but he's, he, he is a gunfighter and he's very good at it. Uh, and uh, so that stuff ends pretty quickly. And then you have the problem of what does Doc Holliday do with the rest of his life on Mars in the in this very advanced society, he's no longer terminally ill, and they no longer have a need for gunfighters. So he's basically superfluous. Um, and the story is about what he and what the society do to try to uh, integrate him uh, to 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 make use. Well, they they have this asset now. How do they make use of that asset? And and from his point of view, well, he's he's uh, back from the dead now, and in theory, he can do or be whatever he wants. But in practice, he's kind of limited by by his past experiences, uh, and so it's a it's a story about that. Yeah, I love the sort of um, you know I think we've talked about this a little bit. I, I think just with cat story, um, this theme of like uh, I think Ethan in the Searchers is sort of like the the quintessential example of this like man who's kind of makes civilization possible by standing outside of it and doing these rough violent things um and but like you say uh you, you have a man very much outside of this civilization he's not from this time literally he's not <clears throat> and so how do you uh, how does he live in this world you know and i think that was a really interesting concept to explore and and then the things of because he's not really doc holiday right he's this sort of amalgamation that they've created from historical documents and he's printed on like a tab uh, template so he sort of he know like one thing i think was very obvious way to point this out it's like he knows that racism is wrong because of sort of the way he because he has this template of a, of a 
whatever century man, but he's got the memories of somebody who was, we, we, today we would call them racist. You know, they make the point like that term didn't even exist things. It was just the way things were. The term, the way you put it is like the term racism didn't exist in Doc Holliday's time because everyone was racist essentially. And the term racism right. doesn't exist in Queendom of Soul because no one is racist. And so he is both at the same time. And, and that's really just a synecdoche of like everything in this, right? Like how he's both and neither and he's out of time. And, and I thought it was a, just a great exploration. And I think I also, the thing to me that I love was you just nailed the like, Doc, the old west rhythm of speech that he still has the, no one else is talking like that so it was a, it was a lot of fun it's not really a question that's a comment i guess but <laughs> so, but um dave i think we got i can i can we can talk about yours real quick we got like a couple minutes here um if you want yeah um yeah yeah let's just let me just real quick say um <clears throat> so uh I think one thing you did was neat is we're talking about these are science fiction westerns, but you also kind of managed to blend in this sort of like PI gumshoe kind of tone to it as well. Um, you got this like, even with the main character with this break, you know, is his nickname um, and he's a medical examiner. And I know you wrote or you did, or I don't know if you still do, or you did write those series of odd jobs mysteries. And um, mm -hmm. I wondered if the, kind of that experience of like kind of, taking a profession and being like, what can I build around this? Did that play into this? Or how did this one uh, come into being? Uh, so, so what I wanted is I was looking for different types of characters that would be in the Old West that wasn't already being covered in the anthology. You know, I didn't want another sheriff and I didn't want, you know, perspective of a minor or anything like that. And I was looking at and, you know, I, I write weird Westerns, so I have a town, and in that town, I have all the characters laid out. And I'm like, so what about an undertaker in space is what it came down to, is mm -hmm. like, how do I get an undertaker uh, out into the, you know, why have an undertaker, and so forth. And, of course, you know, we don't have, you know, necessarily undertakers, you know, uh, anymore. We have, you know, medical examiners, we have coroners and things like that. And I'm like, okay, so why would a colony need such a thing, right? And so there had to be uh, a reason for um, the company to send an undertaker out to Europa Station. And so that automatically puts it in the, the idea of medical mystery, right? Like they have a medical mystery and they need somebody out there with the uh, with the particular skills to be able to figure it out. And that's kind of what I what I did, you know, is, is I sent an undertaker into space. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned we talked about with Michael's the water mining. I guess they're after water in this one, too. Right. Um, who is yeah. it? Tell us there's a because there's also humor, quite a bit of humor in this story. I was <laughs> cracking smiles and chuckling to myself as I was reading it. Tell us who is running this uh this station, it's Europa Station A, and how that came about. So, that idea. So so um uh Coca-Cola claims uh the rights to uh Europa. They're the first people <laughs> to plant their red and white flag uh, on Europa Station. So, uh, yeah, we uh, Coca-Cola is the, 
you know, you look in the future and you look, it's like, okay, so we see Virgin, we see Microsoft and all, and, and, and Amazon and all these companies are all racing into space. And when you think about it, you know, if you're on a quest for water, um, the people with the most amount of money that would want to get the water first would be Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, deemed like a legitimate um, uh, idea. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was funny and great and made sense. Um, we're we're running as always with these. You know, we get to talking and we got we run long, so I'm going to wrap it up. Um, maybe just kind of go around uh, the horn here. Uh, maybe if I can remember the order, we'll go in the order we went in or reverse order or something. Um, if you want to just name a favorite kind of science fiction, Western or fantasy Western of yours uh, that you just always enjoyed and want to plug, and then also plug your own stuff that's coming up. This is where you get to be uh, an old West medicine show and sell your, sell your wares out of your, the back of your covered wagon. So um, Michael, um, Favorite favorite space western and uh, what do you got work? Well, I get to steal everyone else's thunder. Firefly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I've got some stories coming out for uh, Black Library, um, and I don't have publication dates unfortunately. And then a new story out from Bain uh, next. Solid story, so I'm looking forward to it. You know what, Michael? I don't know if this affected the recording, but after you said a new story coming out from Bain, it was like the internet couldn't handle the crass. No, my internet connection's unstable. Can you guys hear me? This is the question. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Can you hear you? So yes. just in case it didn't get on the recording, and I'll, I will use the magic of editing to make this never happen. <laughs> you got a story you said coming out from Bain. What was what was that? Uh, yeah, it's in that anthology, uh, No Game for Nights, and the story okay. is called Storm Surge, and it is in the same universe as my Graveyard Shift uh, novel. Okay, great. Yeah, I believe that's coming out next year, so we'll keep an eye out for that um, that anthology. Uh, who was Najini? Jeannie? I think I you, think it was yeah. me. Okay. I don't remember. <laughs> All right. But it's me now. Uh, let's see. I have a short story come out in Silence in the City anthology. I'm not sure when that's coming out uh, soonish. I do know when uh, my next story set in the, my Belters universe is coming out. That is in the Reinvented Heart anthology. And uh, Kat is uh, one of the editors on that. And that is coming out in February, 2022. Uh, and for those keeping score at home, Aliens Like Us is not yet done, but I'm much, much closer to finishing. So watch this space. It's coming, I swear. And do you have a favorite space western you want to talk about? oh i do uh michael stole it it's firefly but i can add star wars is also a space western right. and so yep. there we go <laughs> so now michael and i've taken everybody's answers yep. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> alex uh what do you think favorite space western and what have you got you're working on uh, so birthright universe by mike resnick which is a uh, uh, an interconnected short story novel uh, in its own, but there's about 30 different books that he's written over, over his lifetime in that universe. And they are, uh, when I first saw Firefly, which I will join everybody in saying it's great, uh, I was convinced that for the moment that uh, it was based on Mike Resnick's work. So if you like Firefly, you should check that out. <laughs> All right. Uh, as far as my own stuff, my, uh, my second novel is forthcoming from Kasich Press in April. Uh, and it's called The Middling Affliction. 
uh, it's a humorous urban fantasy, and I think it'll be just a plug since this is a Bane podcast. I think anybody who enjoyed uh, Jacqueline Hyde Inc. will like that book. Uh, right. Sort of Dresden Files meets American Gods in New York City. All right. Cat, uh, what's uh, uh, what do you think? I actually have a book that just came out. Uh, oh, no, let me start with my favorite space Western, because I actually managed to hold on to one somehow. <laughs> Alex would say it. I'm going to, the original Star Trek, yeah. I think, at yeah. moments has many uh, space Western moments. Um, so my space opera, which has no Western elements whatsoever that I'm aware <laughs> of, is called You Sexy Thing, uh, and it just came out uh, this week. And then I have uh, The Reinvented Heart, uh, which I co-edited with Jen Brozak uh, coming out next year. And we just announced uh, the anthology after that, which is going to be uh, The Reinvented Detective. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm yeah. writing for that one. <laughs> um, Will, uh, what, what have you got coming up here? And what's your favorite yeah. space western? Yeah. I mean, I... I all the good good ones have been taken. Uh, You're allowed yeah, to join the and, team. <laughs> Firefly and Star Trek, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm working right now uh, on a sequel to Rich Man's Sky, which is called Poor Man's Sky. Um, and uh, so that that is uh, the, the next thing I'll have coming up. I am not writing a lot of short fiction at the moment. Um, so... I'd love to say that I have uh, have some more stuff, more more short fiction coming out, but at the moment that's not the case. It's always the thing when you write novels. It's like you get more when it comes out, but there's not all these little, you know, uh, things coming. Yeah. Well, and I pull a lot of your creative energy. Yeah, <laughs> and I can attest to the fact that Will does not write short fiction. Um, <laughs> he's got a nice long uh, piece in this one, so yeah, good stuff. Uh, Dave, you are like well, I said. I jokey, my jokey cowboy voice said you're the the leader of this posse. So we'll let you close it out. Uh, favorite space western and what have you got that you're working on? So in film, I'm going to go with Outland with uh, Sean Connery. Uh, in fiction, Gil the Arm Hamilton uh, from Larry Niven is a great uh, series of of space kind of space western space detective a little bit of uh, both those are i love those stories um oh for what i got coming out so um after this we're following up with another anthology uh space westerns called uh high noon on uh seti alpha b and that uh will be coming out next year right around the same time um, that uh, serialized novel is actually going to be put into print and uh, it's going to have Penny Dreadful style illustrations added to it. And that will be coming out from Pinnacle uh, next year. Um, I also just sold my entire Weird Western short story uh, collection uh, to Wolfpack Publishing, of which the first volume of that will be out next year, The Drowned Horse Chronicle, Volume 1, uh, The Forest Years. So you'll be able to see finally all of the Drowned Horse interconnected stories and their arc in, in one setting. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's other things. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. And um, I just announced that I'm editing a 
tribute anthology to Jack L. Chalker's Well World. And that will be coming out uh, next year from Ark Manor. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what's on the plate right now. We should let you go so you can get to editing. (laughs) (laughs) Back to two. Back yep. to tutoring too. So yep. as Kat knows, there's a lot of hungry writers out there, yeah, well, and, and we hope you know helping people is yeah. a great part of what we get to do. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'll say it again. It's right here, Gunfight on Europa Station. Uh, it has been such a pleasure. Which I should. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Let me mention real quick. The the release date was supposed to be November fourth. It has been pushed back uh, to Amazon to December twentieth. Uh, yeah. due to supply chain issues. Yeah. So you still have it, depending on when this comes out, you still have a plan, a chance to pre-order it and get it day and date when it finally ships from Amazon. Right. So yeah, the, we, um, yeah the, so that's the paperback. If you, I'm sure after listening to this, you're going to say, but it's torture. I can't wait for the paperback. The ebook is out now. So you can get the ebook yeah. uh, on Amazon or at Bain.com, obviously, yeah. or anywhere you get your ebooks. But the paperback. Bain.com. Um, you will, you'll have to wait. Unfortunately, that, that has affected, uh, us, um, and there's nothing much we can do about it. So, um, yeah, that was pushback, but, uh, in any format, whether you wait and get it in paperback or whether you read it in ebook, it is a great collection of stories. And I want to just say thank you so much folks for sitting down and talking about space Westerns. Really appreciate it. Thank you, you, David, for hosting us once again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. And now another installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Five. You want how many mirrors? Amtac was a small company in Huntsville that had managed to survive in a nearly extinguished market. Space mirrors had been well on their way to being a big business before the Horvath arrived. Mirrors were used for a variety of applications from directed energy weapon research to astronomy. Get a bunch of mirrors together that were well spread out, and you could get one heck of a space shot. The replacement envisioned for the Hubble was based on distributed mirror technology. However, the Horvath habit of from time to time potting a satellite just for kicks had practically killed the entire space industry, and space mirrors had been the first to go. James Raskob, president, CEO, and chief engineer of Amtac, had managed to keep the company together, with a lot of layoffs, admittedly, despite the bad times. They also made ground-based mirrors, and as the only remaining supplier of space designs, they could pretty much set their rates when they got any business. But this was a little kooky. I'd like to get up to production of one 10-meter mirror per day, Tyler said. After we're up to one a day, we'll have to start working on better mirrors. These don't need to be great, just be able to reflect sunlight pretty well. And I'd prefer cheap, since we're going to be making a lot. Define pretty well, Raskob said, wincing. I mean, what sort of coefficient of thermal expansion? 
albedo constant? Pretty well is uh, pretty loose. I just need some pretty good mirrors, Tyler said, shrugging. Right now, I just need stuff that will reflect sunlight. Glass, nickel, whatever. Tracking systems, maneuver, boost requirements. How high a thrust during boost? I think the Glatun are about our same grav, Tyler said. They're supplying the tracking and maneuver systems and boost. Oh, and I'm going to need a ground station. You know any people in the ground system business? And you're probably going to need to build up some inventory, hire some people. I'll front you a loan or buy into the business. We're going to be making a lot of mirrors. Look, Raskob said, shaking his head. I appreciate that and everything, but what do you want the mirrors for? Tyler wriggled uncomfortably, then shrugged. I want to melt asteroids. Ah, Raskob said, sitting back and steepling his fingers. Now you're making sense. You have the glatoon willing to boost for you? You know the whole maple syrup thing? Tyler said. Well, I'm the maple syrup king. <laughs> yeah. I can get them to boost for me, and I'm buying standard satellite packs off of them. I'm also getting a supposedly user-friendly control package. Basic idea is boost a bunch of mirrors, focus them on an asteroid, melt it, and pull off the metals. Which will belong to our Horvath benefactors, Raskob pointed out. Which I might just sell in space to the Glatun. Tyler replied. Let the Horvath take it up with them. You are playing a dangerous game, friend, Raskob said. Well aware of it, Tyler said. But it's the only game in town. Now, can you make the mirrors? Easily, Raskob said. But not the main array mirrors. You're right, those are anything cheap, light, and shiny. You're going to have to have collectors, though. Those are going to be tougher. I'll subcontract for the main array mirrors and make the collectors here. We can easily do one of the main array mirrors a day. CTE isn't really a big thing since they're just moving light around. Collectors, one a month to start. And then bump up the production as I can get qualified workers and more equipment. Are we going to need really huge ones? Tyler asked. No, Raskob said. Just more collectors. You don't even have to have collectors all in one spot. And eventually, collectors that can collect from collectors. 200 main array mirror outputs pointing at one collector is about the limit of what one will be able to handle with standard materials. And you're eventually going to want collectors that can handle the power of thousands. Cryogenic beryllium's a thing for that. Problem is keeping it cryogenic in space. Which asteroids are you thinking of mining? I was thinking the ones that are inward towards the sun from Earth, Tyler said. A tans? Raskob said, shrugging. That works. They don't stay in there, you know, very eccentric orbits. Main array down towards Venus orbit? Tyler asked. That way it's collecting more sunlight. Without getting into the super-hot regimes, Raskob said, 
Sure, that will work. I'd suggest up out of the plane of the ecliptic to keep it out of the way. Point, Tyler said. I've got a thousand sat-packs coming in a month. I'm not sure when I'll have ships to carry it up, but there are more free traders coming these days. They're always willing to pick up a few extra credits. I can probably get a whole ship since all the maple syrup is gone. In a month, I can have ten mirrors at least, Raskob said. Primary array, that is. Maybe one collector. And yes, I know people who do ground control. If they've got systems to support it, he added, glumly. Everybody's IT stuff is breaking down. I'm getting at least one hypernode connector as well, Tyler said. And, ahem, I'm the world's primary supplier of Atacirc. I assume they can integrate Atacirc into their systems? Oh, yeah. This is going to be fun. As long as our Horvath benefactors don't get snarky. Well, that's always the problem, Tyler said. Admiral, thank you for taking my call. Gorku said. Since I was ordered to do so, I really didn't have a choice, Admiral Orth Glatuli said. The commander of the Glaucod Defense Zone did not seem especially pleased to be taking a personal call from one of the system's wealthiest individuals. Now, Admiral, I truly would not be bothering you if I didn't feel it was important to the Federation. I know how busy you are. I will take that under advisement, the Admiral said. What is the substance of the call? I would like you to reevaluate the question of the Terran system, Gorku said. I continue to contend that maple syrup, popular as it is among my sailors, is not a reason to go to war with a Horvath, and war is certainly not a reason for you to make another megacred. Agreed, Gorku said. But I would suggest strongly that you engage Ladria in a serious analysis of the humans in terms of not just immediate but long-term consequences to the Glatun Federation. Ladria is, after all, the only Class V AI in the system. AIs were broken down into classes one through five, depending on the multiplicity and complexity of tasks they could perform. Large freighters, cruisers, and passenger liners might host a Class I AI. This went up in scale to Class IV, which were the highest, legally, permitted to corporations and those used by fleets. Class V were relegated only to military and governmental entities. There were rumors that certain corporations had defied the ban and created their own Class V and even Class VI AIs. The problem with AIs was that as the processing power went up, the stability went down. Class VI AIs were considered fundamentally unstable, and given their potential harm, the one thing you didn't want was a rogue AI. But if anyone had an illegal high-level AI, it would be Gorku. How long-term? the Admiral asked. If it's very long-term... That is a serious amount of processing. I would suggest that you look beyond immediate concerns, Admiral, that is all, Gorku said. It is always wise to look beyond the immediate and contemplate the realm of possibilities inherent in the future. 
Good day. This is Lisa Cranwell with Eyewitness News, and we're talking to Mr. Tyler Vernon, the man who discovered the maple syrup connection. Mr. Vernon, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Lisa, Tyler said, beaming. He'd insisted that the interview be live. He was pretty sure he could out-talk a reporter, even with or especially with five hostile producers telling her what to say. Mr. Vernon, some people call you the Maple Sugar King. Granted, Tyler said, smiling. And others, the Maple Sugar Bandit. Now that's just unfair, Tyler said, looking wounded. When I made my acquisitions, I was very careful to avoid buying the old, established maple sugar distilleries that had been around for generations, and now they are all getting extremely rich off of what was once a minor commodity. My primary acquisitions were from other corporations and land that was already on the market. I don't think that anyone considers sales from one corporation to another as banditry, Lisa but it has made you the richest man in the world. I was the richest man in the world when I sold one cargo of maple syrup to a tramp freighter, Tyler said. I'd also like to point out that when people were selling the artistic treasures of our beautiful planet for a handful of peas, I was the one who found the one thing that we could produce that the Glatun wanted. Anyone could have done what I did. I'm shocked and appalled that some other corporation didn't. And whereas I'm now the richest person in the world, when I met my first glatun, the free trader Wathayeth, I was cutting firewood for a living. That's the beauty of the free market, Lisa. Anyone with the right drive and determination and just a touch of luck can succeed. And just what do you intend to do with your maple-gotten gains? I've already established scholarships for young people from this previously economically depressed region, as well as other philanthropies. I've also embarked on a program to find sources of material that Glatun or other extraterrestrial groups may enjoy from the wonders of our beautiful planet. Most of those would also come from economically depressed regions. And as for the people who do the extremely hard work of gathering maple sap and distilling it, 20% of gross profits are detailed to bonuses. So it's not like I'm hoarding it like a miser. And we here at Eyewitness News have learned that you are building space mirrors? Aren't those used for laser weapons? Are you intending to antagonize our Horvath benefactors? Not at all, Lisa, Tyler said, smiling toothily and shaking his head in deprecation. You completely misunderstand their purpose. Such mirrors have a multiplicity of uses. Take astronomy. By scattering mirrors over a large area, it is possible to have a telescope with that same area. Instead of a telescope with a diameter of, say, 60 meters, such as Palomar, you end up with a telescope of 6,000 meter diameter. We can resolve very fine detail with something like that and continue our exploration of the wonders of the universe. They are also useful for orbital smelting. You can use the renewable power of our beautiful sun to turn dangerous asteroids into useful materials. And, of course, any precious metals that are derived from such smelting are naturally the property of our Horvath protectors. As to their use as a weapon, 
We don't have any lasers that could even scratch the Horvath ship, and I defy anyone to suggest that the Horvath are anything other than our good and close friends and protectors. You seem to have all the answers, Mr. Vernon, the reporter said. I certainly hope so, Lisa, Tyler said. We can all look forward to a bright future, a future in which we just become closer to our Horvath friends. Remember what they say, Lisa. Keep your friends close. Admiral, I have completed my long-term analysis run, Ladria said at the end of a standard briefing, and I'm rather glad that Trader Gorku suggested it. I also suggest that similar runs be presented to main system AIs. The data is disturbing. How much trouble was it? The Admiral asked. Rather much, Ladria said. I had to distribute processor cycles to all the other systems in the system, and it still took me nearly a month. But, as I said, it was worth it. So, what is the point of intervening in the Terran system? The Admiral asked. Or is there one? There is, Ladria answered. Assuming that you wish to extend the lifespan of the Glatun Federation as a major interstellar polity for between fifty and seventy years. That requires explanation, the Admiral said, sitting back. Clear whatever's on my calendar for the next two cycles. Explain. All major polities rise and fall, Admiral, Ladria said. As the Ormator were great when the Glatun first encountered them three thousand years ago and are now a minor polity, so will the Glatun eventually become lesser. Not gone, but less important. Agreed, the Admiral said. How long do you give the Federation? That depends, Ladria said. But choices made in the very near future will affect that period greatly. The longest period, I can predict, is 130 turns. The shortest is 10. 10? Yes, sir, Ladria said softly. 10. The likelihood of it being 10 is less than 3%. It increases with each turn, with certain turns being paramount, and Terra may hold the key. Intervention by the Glatun in the human system adjusts a major change point in between 15 and 20 turns. With Glatun intervention, the likelihood of the Federation ceasing to exist in that period drops by 21%, plus or minus 3, and the likelihood without intervention is 73%. Why? War, Ladria said, with one of four other major polities. The Rangora are at the top of the list at 37% likelihood. Then the Ogut, Barche, and Ananankawamore. If this is known to the central AIs, surely they are preparing for war, the Admiral said. Unfortunately, that is not entirely possible, Ladria said. Your species has begun to enter its final decline. Your birth rate has dropped sharply. Less than one-half of one percent of your species enters your military. There is a permanently unemployed class that is approaching thirty percent. I know all that, the Admiral said testily. But in the face of war... You really don't want me to cover it all, Admiral, Ladria said. Take your AI's word for it, 
you're facing a war, and you're most likely going to lose. So intervening with the humans drops the likelihood of such a war? The admiral asked. No, sir, the AI replied. It reduces the likelihood of losing. The war is more or less inevitable. It is possible that one of the central AIs has already predicted this. If so, they are keeping the information very close. But I doubt they have factored in the humans. If they have done a similar process cycle, they are looking at termination of the Glatun Federation by war in 15 to 20 turns as a better than 70% likelihood, with no way to survive. The humans are, sorry, primitives, the admiral said. I don't see them being the balance between winning and losing a major interstellar war. Admiral, you understand the problem of such a wide-ranging analysis, Ladria said. There are too many variables to sort out. It is what you Glatun call a hunch, except that it reports the results as variables. There are many, many unknowns. We could, through one of the new gates, encounter a more hostile and dogmatic regime with high advancement at any time. Thus, the ten-year result. Or one that would be a better ally than the humans, thus low probability results that indicate long-range survival. My results, however, are solid. I can give you some small data items that may sway your personal analysis. Very well, the admiral said. Go ahead and try to change my mind. Humans are at present primitive, Ladria admitted. Well behind the Glatun in technological advancement, but unlike most races, the humans do not slowly evolve technologically. Their history is replete with examples of very fast technological advance mixed with periods of relative stasis. Part of the analysis indicates that they were what is termed cuspel. They were on the edge of developing most of the basic technologies for functional space travel, except a gate. Further, they are not behind the Glatun at the point that the Glatun encountered the Ormiter. Rather ahead of that point, in fact. Far beyond the relevant first contact point of the Horvath. The Horvath had no mechanical transport systems at the point of contact, no information systems, and still used the latter poorly. Humans have rudimentary AIs. They had a nascent space program and a fully developed, albeit primitive, information distribution system. They were closing in on fundamental understanding of gravitics, and energy conversion systems are one step away from that. They had the basic concept of implant technology and only need refinement to adopt it. They are likely to not slide forward slowly, but positively leap. With a large population that is at least in parts technologically savvy, they have the basis for a major industrial base, spacefaring, and not only system defense, but powerful ships within as little as 20 years. Given what I believe some of them are contemplating, those ships will be the savior of the Glatun. If they get the Horvath off their necks, the admiral said. And what about the humans as a threat? That is the flip side to the analysis, Ladria said. Humans do not always hold true to allies. A degree of self-interest is in their nature. That is, however, strongly culturally affected. 
targeting for rapid advancement, the right culture is key. If the Glatun become friends with the right cultures, by the time the cultures forget what they owe the Glatun, the Federation will be in senescence anyway. Handled properly, they will be a strong ally in the wars that are coming, the Glatun's protectors in your old age. Handled improperly, they will join with your enemies to drag you into a dark age from which your species will not recover in 10,000 years. Which culture? the admiral asked. And how exactly? The humans have a saying. Comes the moment, comes the man, Ladria answered, flashing a hologram of Tyler Vernon. Make this man your friend, admiral, but in a very particular way. This is Sayank Morai with Hypernet News Network 8, and I'm talking to Terran Tyler Vernon, the maple syrup king. Mr. Tyler, welcome to HNN8. The Ocho, Tyler replied with a broad-cut, closed-lipped smile. I'm so happy to be speaking with your viewers, Sank. And we're happy to be speaking with you, Mr. Tyler. You don't seem uncomfortable with dealing with extraterrestrials, despite the fact that your world has only recently made first contact. One of my fondest dreams was to one day speak with wise and wonderful beings from other planets, Sank, Tyler said. The opening of the gate was a great thing for all our people. But you're under the tyrannical boot of the Horvath, Mr. Tyler. Now, now, Sank, the Horvath are our friends. For the paltry sum of all our precious metals, they provide us with protection and the occasional clearing up of our orbital systems. Protection from what, exactly? We're still trying to figure that out, Sank. From the Glatun, presumably, since you and the Horvath are the only species we have encountered. Are you hiding some deep, dark, dastardly secret, Sank? Come on, you can tell me. No, of course not, Mr. Tyler, the reporter said with a sneeze. You are so funny. So the Horvath are really your friends? What else am I going to say with a Horvath battle cruiser holding our orbit, Sank? Hypernet Network News has learned that the Horvath are now demanding all of Earth's maple syrup, which they intend to trade with the Glatun. What do you have to say about that, Mr. Tyler? Maple syrup is interesting stuff, Tyler said. It's not a few mines. Thousands of people over an area of nearly 10,000 square miles, almost entirely rural have to stumble out into the bitter cold and snow to tap hundreds of thousands of trees and collect the syrup. Then hundreds of maple distilleries have to boil it down, since it can't be moved far before processing. If those people decide it's a good day to sleep in, it becomes very hard to collect any significant amount of maple sap. I, of course, fully intend to collect every bit of maple syrup possible for our Horvath friends and benefactors but I can't do it all myself, Sank. We have about two months until we have to start collecting maple syrup. I suppose we'll just have to see what happens. We Glatun would hate to have our maple syrup supply cut off, Sank said. That wouldn't be very fun. I know, Sank, Tyler said. Nor would having our cities turn to ashes. But I can't make thousands of people go out in the cold, Sank. We'll just have to see what happens. There has been talk of armed resistance, Mr. Tyler. Well, what would be the point of that, Sank? Tyler said.
All we have is a few deer rifles. We can't exactly shoot a Horvath battle cruiser down. What I really fear is that our Horvath benefactors will feel so justifiably irritated by the inaction of local sap collectors that they'll destroy the trees. It will be hard, but a big enough orbital laser will clear out most of the major sap collecting areas, and it takes at least 20 years to grow a decent maple tree. If they do that, you'll be missing out for a long time. And on that note, we're out of time, Sank said. Thank you for talking to us, Mr. Tyler. My pleasure, Sank. And we're clear. Seriously, off the record, not for attribution. Gonna get our maple syrup when they pry it from our cold, dead hands. Take that as a notable resident of the area. Gotcha. That'll give it some punch. That was another installment on John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that is it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to David Boop, Kat Rambo, Jenny Koch, Michael F. Haspel, Will McCarthy, and Alex Schwartzman. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Schreierod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.